Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Well, hello again to the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. Today, you are unfortunate enough just to be stuck with Jason, so I will try and mumble my way through this. But regardless, we're very excited for this podcast today. We welcome Hunter Thompson. Hi, Tom. Hi, Hunter. How's it going? Thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's going amazing. And thank you so much for being with us. And a little bit more about Hunter. Hunter is a full-time real estate investor and founder of Cashflow Connections, a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles. Uh, Since starting CFC, Hunter has helped more than 200 investors allocate capital to over 100 properties, which have a combined asset value of more than, did I get this right, $350 Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Just making sure I was in line there. That's pretty impressive. In connection with these investments, he has partnered with some of the most experienced and well-respected asset teams across the United States and Canada. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And uh, Hunter, thank you so much for coming on today. And, you know, we usually like to start just with how did you get started in real estate? Yeah, you know, it's kind of an interesting story. I think that for a lot of people, 2008 was a big moment in their careers, right? No matter if you you weren't even in the business, you knew that that was a big uh, time to pay attention to financial assets. That was basically the situation for me. So I was in the process about to graduate college. 2008 started to happen. I really, by my nature, have kind of a counter-cyclical personality. So when that took place, I was very interested in financial assets. I realized that blood was in the streets in a really unique way and really went all in in the real estate market. So what I really started doing before I even went into real estate though was stocks. I saw that stocks had been collapsed. That was the investment vehicle I was most familiar with at the time. And I started investing in stocks, pursuing that, not necessarily day trading, but trying to learn evaluation, et cetera. And that was really my main focus for about two years until uh, 2010 or so when the European debt crisis really started happening. And this is something I've I've talked about before, but it's just really such a defining moment because I really realized that the overall economy, the intermingling, the co-mingling, and the complete correlation of all those financial assets, they're all tied together. And I was watching CNBC and they're talking about the European bond yields. And they're saying, if if the Greeks bond yields go above 7%, the S&P 500 is going to collapse. If they remain below 7%, the S&P 500 is going to be fine. I remember thinking, how is it the case that the Greece bond yields have anything to do with my financial portfolio, let alone playing a significant role on a day-to-day basis? And that was really when I was like, you know, this is completely ridiculous. I have to find a more straightforward investment where I can actually control the risks. I can mitigate them. I can wrap my head around them. And that's what really led me to real estate and originally focused on some very straightforward investments. Wow. And so you take that idea and saying, I'm just going to go all in on real estate. What does that first investment look like? So back then we were trying to identify really stable investments that are secured by real estate. So the first investments that we made were essentially hard money loans, anywhere between 12 month term and seven year term for people that were buying properties in stable markets. These are markets that historically aren't very volatile. So let's say Memphis, Tennessee, Kansas city, where the vast majority of the purchase prices within a certain range are based on rental income and rental income is just not really that volatile as opposed to let's say San Diego or something like that. So Memphis, Tennessee, we were loaning on properties that were worth, let's say a hundred thousand dollars. We'd loan up to $60,000 and we would get a monthly interest rate. And at the time you could get 12, 13, maybe even 14%, even long-term debt at that rate. And so I remember looking at this saying, you know, historically Memphis has never suffered a 40% correction in prices. So we're very well protected. The downside, this is basically like a CD that pays double digits. And I was thinking, you know, this, this is too good to be true. Well, it ended up kind of being too good to be true. The market figured that out. Now those, those rates are nowhere near what those were. And so as that, the markets changed, you know, my investment strategies changed to get favorable risk adjusted returns. But I think, you know, being nimble enough to, to change your strategy as market conditions change is important. And so we can get into some of the investments that I've pursued since then, but that was first, the first investments I made was a debt. Wow. And so some obvious questions. Usually that's like a, 
longer term, more experienced term play to go straight to lending. And so you, you, you spoke a lot about we, and you're only a couple of years out of college here. Who, who is we and, and how were you basically, how'd you create this hard money lending process? Yeah, sure. So originally, you know, I, I wanted to pull in friends and family. I, I was thinking, look, this is the, the prices have collapsed. There's a, a clear opportunity. I don't really like the stock market. So my, my first couple of, of investments were funded by, you know, friends and family. And, and since then, the business has really grown significantly. I mean, you mentioned 200 investors. The number is really closer to about uh, 250 at this point, but the founding and the original opportunity was really just an opportunity to help friends and family diversify. Wow. That's great. Yeah. It's, uh, it sounds very familiar. We had Matt Rodak on the podcast, uh, earlier with fun that flip. And he, uh, had talked a lot about that too, when he was first building this out, bringing friends and friends and family. And when we've done our syndications, it's that same model helping your friends and family expand their horizon and get into better investments that are more targeted to help them on the downside. I'd love that. Exactly. And just one other point, because you mentioned, you know, the debt being not the typical first real estate investment people make from this is really comes down to personality standpoint and what you're really trying to accomplish. So, and this, this may sound like kind of a cop out, but I was always, and still to this day, am trying to be away from the asset to have at least one layer in between me and, and the asset to leverage someone else's time, energy, and expertise, access to capital and liability. And debt is a great way to do that in the sense that if something goes wrong, you never call Bank of America if they have your loan on your mortgage, right? So I was trying to be in that position. If something goes wrong, they may call the property manager, you know, the tenant may call the property manager, but they're not going to call the lender. And so I was trying to mitigate those phone calls, mitigate that administrative work. And that was the vehicle in which I was able to do that. It's incredible. And a lot of people sit in the sidelines and are so scared to do that first deal. And here you are in the height of the crisis and we're seeing everything running, everybody running the other way. You jump in. What, what is it? Was, were you working with mentors or what allowed you, you think, mentally to take action in this time? And what could translate to someone today who's just so scared to get into that first deal and they're just sitting on the sidelines because they can't get by that mental block? Sure. So this is something that you know, like I mentioned earlier, somewhat kind of natural to me. I'm, I've always been drawn to put myself in those positions where when other people are really looking left, I go right. And that's part of that's a personality situation. The other part though, I moved to California in a very favorable time to learn about real estate for a couple different reasons, not only because of the market cycle, but also because of the fact that I was going to networking events where there would be very few people there. And obviously the mood was very somber because the market had been really obliterated. So I developed relationships with the people that were at those networking events. And I later would find out that some of those investors were some of the most influential investors in the state of California. I didn't know this at the time, but it was just the people that were able to weather that storm, I ended up developing really close relationships with. Um, Jeremy Roll is one of those, Matthew Owens, David Coe, who really, you know, are really influential. They put out a lot of educational content in California. They run a networking event called For Investors by Investors. And those are some of my, my, my closest friends in the business. And that network is responsible for probably 80% of the business that I do. So I basically met people that thought about the space similarly to me and mimicked their action. And I think that this is why podcasts like yours are so great. Your guests are coming on. They're, they're, saying the playbook. So it's just a matter of listening to the ideas and implementing it, being authentic, being yourself, making other people's ideas align with your own core values, and then executing on a plan, something that makes sense to you. And I think if you just move forward, you're going to have success in all types of life, but also in real estate as well. Yeah, and I love that. If Peely was sitting here today, she would be saying these exact words, no new ideas. Find other people that are doing <laughs> what you want to do and just follow the steps that they want to do. Because we always think right. we make it better in just some magical way. But if you just follow their steps and they're being successful, it will lead you down the path you want. And so now when we look at that first deal going from lending, how has your business evolved over the last seven, eight years? So I really, I'm trying to put myself in a position to find risk adjusted returns. And I think a lot of people's introduction to real estate focuses on single family. Um, maybe, maybe moving into multifamily, but generally it's the most palpable investment. Most people live in a single family property at some point in their life. They look at the investment criteria. They say $30,000. 
I may have $30,000. I know my uncle certainly has $30,000. So I can get involved in the single family space. The challenge with that, uh, from my perspective at least, is that the, there is not that much uh, delta between a best in class single family operator and a, a mom and pop single family operator. In the sense that if you have one or two single family houses, your operational efficiencies and your ability to add value may be similar to someone like Blackstone, who's got a thousand of the properties. I mean, they learned that lesson, right? They bought a thousand single family houses. They weren't able to achieve the type of returns that they wanted to. And the reason for that is that the simplicity of the investment doesn't allow you to tweak every single line item. So I was really drawn to commercial because there are so many more moving parts still within that simplicity of real estate, but so many moving parts that each line item can be tweaked and optimized and your ability to scale and then get that, uh, the economies of scale that goes along with it. I found that very compelling uh, something else is I really like to deal with highly sophisticated individuals that have a lot to gain or lose when it comes to incentive alignment. So when you look at single family, for example, you may be your, your most important aspect and moving part of that investment is the property manager. So depending on where market you're at, the property manager may be making, let's say 50 or $150 a month or so on the property. I think that's relatively reasonable, maybe 200. That $200 a month, uh, most likely do not make or break their lives. Okay. And so then having that property rented or not rented, depending on how you set up the structure, it's, it's something that they are going to take seriously if they're depending on it. And especially if they're doing referrals and stuff like that. But what I much prefer is to invest in five, 10, 15, $20 million properties where the sponsor stands to gain seven figures and, you know, highly sophisticated individuals where if they make a mistake, if they violate any kind of operating agreement, not only do they have a lot to lose, they have a pool of investors pursuing them per the rules of, of securities, which are categorically different. I mean, they have, you can have criminal components. So long story short, I look at the incentive structure and look at what's to, to gain or lose and the amount of value you can add by relying on someone else's expertise, which can be very significant. And that was what really led me to the path of syndications. Um, this is all done within the framework of achieving my number one financial goal, which is being able to sleep at night. And that comes through diversification. So the way that I can be diversified is relying on experts in their particular niches and leveraging my capital and my investors capital with their expertise. So Hunter, let's talk a little bit about syndication for someone who may not be familiar with that term. Can you give us a, a brief explanation? Sure. So this is an investment method where investors are pulled together, usually in an LLC. They invest into shares of the LLC, which are considered the passive investor shares. This is usually considered the LP or the B shares. On the other side of those shares are the active shares, the sponsor shares. And this is someone who's overseeing the entire investment. They have relationships with brokers. They have the operational prowess to execute a business plan. In exchange for that expertise, they take a percentage of the proceeds. So a typical structure looks something like this. There is a preferred return, usually somewhere between 6 and 10%. Anything above that is split somewhere between 50-50 and 80-20. 80 going to the investor, 20 going to the sponsor. So the way that my business is positioned is we have significant relationships with some of the best sponsors and the most, most uh, expert sponsors in their particular asset class. And we leverage passive investor capital with their expertise. Now my firm is, is uniquely positioned because we're kind of in a gray area in the sense that we're highly involved in virtually every side of this whole process but excluding that for the moment, you usually have a sponsor and a passive investor. And that's the way that the, the syndications work. Yeah, and I love that. And this is a great point because when people are trying to get into and do their own syndications, they're, they're always stuck in a model that they have to run and wear all the hats. And that's where a lot of failure can come in, especially when you're new to this point. There's so many moving steps. There's so many items to check off. And if this is something you not have done before, you're definitely going to miss at least one point is throughout the process if you don't have the right team around you. But you can get into syndications doing a lot of different other things. You can be a passive investor and watch how this sponsor or active investor is. You can 
bring in and be a syndicator of funds and raise funds for other investments. There's, there's not just one way that you can do this. And sometimes wearing a smaller hat or even not such a smaller hat, but having another position can really help you in the long run to understand the entire horizon of the investment. So yeah, it's a great exactly. Point. Thank you. And so if you look at today, talking about commercial real estate, is there one space that you really like to dive into? So I, like I said, diversification is key for me. So historically, if I invested in virtually every type of commercial real estate. Um, however, I think it's important to consider the changes in market conditions. So I have actually sold a lot of my multifamily. I don't believe that I have any assets. Yeah, I don't have any assets in multifamily right now, but multifamily is one of my favorite asset classes. I think at the right timing in the market, you're able to really generate lucrative returns. Um, having said that, I'm certainly interested in looking at multifamily right now. It just so happens that in an effort to be diversified, things change and, and market conditions change. The asset classes that I'm extremely bullish on, um, you know, basically I wanted to find something that was, given where we are in the cycle, uh, uncorrelated with the overall economy or at least stable during downturns. And there's two asset classes that really meet that criteria. Maybe three, we can talk about the third one in a moment. The, the, the number one inverse correlated real estate asset is mobile home parks. I think that makes sense from a big picture. The worse the economy does, the more demand there is for, for mobile home parks. Um, there's also a unique situation with mobile home parks that a lot of investors may be interested in, which is that there's actually less and less mobile home parks every single year. So you have this very interesting supply demand disequilibrium that is quite favorable as an investor. You also have looking at social security, even in its current form, social security is not a sustainable product in the sense that it does not provide people a standard of living based on median values. So the average social security check is about $1,300 a month, and the average two-bedroom apartment rents for about $1,200 a month. So mathematically, it's not possible to really rely on Social Security and live in that 12 two-bedroom apartment. And that's in its current form. I think probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with the fact that the government itself, the federal government, the Social Security Administration, they are explicitly saying there will be a significant reduction in benefits starting somewhere around 2026, 2031, depending on who you listen to. And that doesn't necessitate that we don't need that in order for the mobile home park business to make sense, but that's happening and it definitely makes it more compelling. Um, the other asset class that I think makes a lot of sense is self-storage. Now, self-storage, it may not make as much sense on the front end, but the key is that People use that product when they're going through some kind of life change. A lot of those changes can be brought on by recession. So you think about people moving home from college, uh, downsizing, people changing jobs. These are all more common during recessions. And you actually get to catch both ends of the spectrum with self-storage because when the economy's booming, people are more likely to buy RVs, jet skis, and stuff like that. So you have a little bit more value-add potential but the business is very unique. A lot of people think about self-storage as if it's a straightforward, simple investment because of you're not offering a lot. There's not amenities. When people think of you know, a top-tier self-storage facility. It doesn't mean you have a pool or something like that. It just means that the boxes are safe and you know, it's a secure environment. It might be an interesting value add, though, for the future, right? If it gets really tight <laughs> in a self-storage space, well, we do have a pool. Throw right. See what happens. I don't know how much uh, recreational time is spent in self-storage facilities, but exactly. yes, yeah, so that's basically the point. However, there can be, if you know what you're doing, if you're a top-tier operator, there are so many ways to add value to those properties that mom and pop owners, which are the majority of the business, do not implement. So we're talking Can about things a like examples. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, absolutely. So SEO is really big in the self storage community. Branded merchandise sales, really being efficient with your admin and fees, and really increasing rents aggressively. You can raise rents every thirty days with self storage because the business operates on monthly leases. Something else that I find extremely compelling is the implementation of U-Haul or, or truck rental trucks. So we will buy properties that are not implementing a strategy. As soon as we buy the property, we'll contact our contact at U-Haul. They will bring 15 to 50 trucks, park them on our facility, and then we rent out the trucks 
and get a commission from U-Haul for facilitating the transaction. I have personally invested in properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,800 a month directly to the bottom line within 12 months. So if you're talking about $3,800 a month, that's like $600,000, $750,000 of value that you're adding, but you're not taking on that risk. So it really goes back to that risk return profile and looking for risk adjusted investments. If it's just a matter of implementing that strategy, you're really putting yourself in a, in a good position, even if it's only to protect yourself from the downside in the event of a correction. So those are the two asset classes that I'm very bullish on. Uh, the third is assisted living. Now, I don't have investments in assisted living because it's a very unique business. A lot of the companies are very well funded. So companies like my firm don't add a lot of value uh, in the sense that they may have $100 million of dry powder. And if my company may invest $10 million, they're not willing to uh, jump over loops to make it work. And um, we don't like to work for free, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Having said that, I'm always looking for really unique self-storage mobile home park and assisted living deals. So um, you can definitely talk about yeah, that we as had, well. Uh, we had Gene Guarino on episode 188 talking all about assisted living, and it was it was truly a uh, very interesting conversation. So we can see why you're focusing on that space, especially with with the drivers for each of these asset classes. It's just so interesting. Is there? Let's let's basically change the direction here. Is there any commercial spaces that you absolutely won't touch right now? Well, I'd like to answer in that I'm interested in anything for the right price. I'm not 100% sure that that's true, but I think it's, a, it's at least a catchy thing to say. Um, I would say that there may be an opportunity in office and then also in retail, but office is challenging because it's highly cyclical. If you go back and look at the vacancy rates, which people struggled with, you know, that it can really present some major challenges, and it's really antithetic to my overall investment thesis, which is trying to be as predictable as possible. Um, I also don't really love office because of the relatively short leases, five years um, compared to retail, let's say. And typically, I like to see 10 or 13 tenants, just from a tenant diversification standpoint. It's not quite common in the office sector. Now, with retail, again, I've, I've invested significantly with retail. Um, I, I do have retail holdings at this point, and will continue to do so in the future. It's obviously going through a paradigm shift right now with, with Amazon in particular, but the internet as a whole killing businesses. I would say that the key with retail now, again, tenant diversification, large facilities in the correct market, but also just be very cautious about the rent roll and the tenant base. You want to make sure that the tenant base is not susceptible to the internet threat, and that the, the anchor tenants are going to be very challenging to disrupt and make sure that the rent rolls are not uh, improperly staggered so that all of a sudden one year, if you have a recession, you're going to experience a really significant challenge. So again, I like all types of real estate, but those are two of the ones that are presenting a bit of a challenge. Um, in my those opinion. Super points though. Yeah. It's, even for multifamily, you want to make sure that all, all your leases do not end in the same month and you have mass exited. So that that's a great point. You can't reiterate that enough. And so, Looking at the deals you've done over your horizon, is there, is there a favorite deal and what would it be? You know, we just closed the third of three sales um, from self-storage facilities that I think will go down as some of my favorite investments. So again, really just identifying appropriate markets. You know, Florida is a great market for self-storage because it, it's surrounded by water. You have highly really high occupancy, high median income, high median house value properties surrounding these markets. You're also, water sports are gonna play a big role in the market as well. And so I really like self-storage for, for that reason, but also baby boomers. A lot of them are moving there and downsizing. People don't wanna get rid of their stuff. So you move from a four bedroom house to a two bedroom house or a two bedroom apartment, you're much more likely to be a self-storage tenant. So that market is really solid. So there's three properties. Um, in that area, one in North Carolina, where we bought these properties, implemented those value add strategies, very little capital expenditure. The reason I say that is it matters on a risk adjusted basis. If you're going in and buying a property, expanding it by 100% or 50%, you're dealing with contractors and potential delays and you're dealing with zoning requirements, you're incurring a significant amount of risk to add that value. What I really want to do is look at properties 
where the value can be achieved with only minimal capital expenditure and therefore minimal risk. So I mentioned, you know, earlier adding $3,800 a month to the NOI, $700,000 in value. There's other things like mandatory uh, tenant insurance. So we can buy properties that do not mandate that their tenants insure all their products. We still advertise for the same rate. So it still is attractive from an advertising perspective. Once we get in there, we mandate that they, they insure their goods. This can also really reduce the, the struggles you'll deal with if you have some kind of natural disaster. So that's another $1,500 or $1,200 a month in Hawaii. So cumulatively, you're really starting to add things up. So we bought properties, you know, averaging about $6 million purchase prices that we ended up selling for 9.5, 10, somewhere in that range on average. And we usually buy with a seven to 10 year time horizon. So we were able to buy properties, implement the strategies much more quickly than we originally anticipated, return investor capital, and those resulted in you know, 25, 26, and 22% IRRs, or excuse me, ROIs, which is just, in my opinion, remarkable given the risk profile. So there's a lot of real estate investments out there that can achieve that in favorable market conditions, but the, the lack of incurred risk is why I want to say that those are some of my favorite investments that, I, that I've made. Um, and there is a caveat to that, though, which is that, of course, you know, we identified markets that were primed for growth in a very favorable time to invest in real estate. So we did experience significant cap rate compression. So I really wanted to add that in there because at this time in the cycle, it's really important to be transparent about achieving those types of returns in this roast profile. That's not something that can be done over and over and over again um, because you can't experience infinite cap rate compression. Um, so either way though, I'll yeah. definitely take it. Yeah. Take it for now. Right. Take it, take right. it there, but don't, don't definitely expect it. Cause where, where can it possibly go over the long run? And I, I have a question. I know, I, I know I haven't asked before, so I, I do want to ask it dealing with so many passive investors Let's talk about that because what, what, in two levels. One, why do people invest passively and not just go do it themselves? And the other one is what has been a success story if, if you have something that you want to share for maybe a passive investor who's been able to retire because of the investments they've made or they've been able to have more freedom in their life? What, what's something you can give us there? Yeah, no, I really appreciate that question. So I'll, I'll start with, with the last one. So actually, could you repeat the first one again? I, I don't want to do uh, that order. The first one is, is everybody else says, well, well, why don't I just do it myself? So oh, right. Sorry. Way and not just do it yourself. I got so starry eyed by the last one because I yeah, do have exactly. some interesting stories. So first of all, there have been some change in laws recently, which allowed for public solicitation of, of accredited investors. And so now all of a sudden you have access to deals on the internet. You can go and Google real estate investments, crowdfunding, and you're going to get 20 companies that provide access to really high quality real estate. The challenge is that we can't tell based on the offering documents, the marketing material, who really knows what they're doing. And so with this, with this access has come a, a complete paradigm shift where now people think, but real estate always goes up. That is totally not the case. That is why we work with a very, very limited number of sponsors and do a very limited number of deals each year. So with some of those businesses out there, they're essentially a very good looking VC funded version of Craigslist for real estate. You have a great website, you've got all these deals, but you don't know where the incentive alignments are. You don't know the track record of the business as a whole. And it's very difficult to conduct accurate due diligence through a third party. So the way that we're positioned in the market is kind of an answer to that in the sense that we are not a website. We are an investment company. I personally invest in each deal. We'll probably do two deals or maybe three deals in 2018, as opposed to a company that puts up 30 deals on their website and says, click here to invest and they're accepting capital. So why should someone, you know, not just invest themselves, you know, that's, that's one thing. Um, and then as far as, you know, some, some stories of investors, we have had family offices that we work with, you know, say, here's a million dollars. I'd like to mimic the investments that you're making for your, your own personal portfolio, or here's a half a million dollars. Let's build a fund that meets this criteria. And those are obviously some of my favorites to work with because we're only working with a small number of investors and it's a relatively large investment amount. But I will say that, 
you know, I have a podcast, I'm host of a podcast that's a focus on commercial real estate. It's Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. And the goal with that podcast, obviously podcasting has taken off, which is just remarkable, um, but it's somewhat saturated. Um, and so the way that we want to differentiate ourselves is to be slightly more sophisticated, to, to have longer conversations about, you know, only weekly episodes, et cetera, in order to facilitate that. By far, the best comment I've ever gotten was someone who explicitly passed on a deal because of some comments that, we, that I made during the show. That is powerful to me. Um, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback, whatever, but what I want to do is help people protect their capital, and I'd like to help people grow their capital as well, but hearing, and I know the deal that they passed on, I'm glad they passed on it, hearing that someone, because of the program, saw that the underwriting standards were not nearly up to our criteria was very moving for me. Um, so there's kind of my, my favorite story. I love that. And let's, let's even push it for, forward because you invest in two, maybe three deals a year. And with this, with this pushes, not every deal is a good deal. So you doing two or three deals. How many deals do you look at a year? Ballpark. Yeah. So, I mean, really early on, we were looking at massive volume. And so since then we've, identified the people that we really want to build lifelong relationships with and focused on them. So we don't constantly receive deals, 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 deals. Um, my strategy is I want to work with 10 people for the rest of my life. Awesome. And I have like four that I work with. So the rest of my life is really going to try to be identifying those other six. And similarly, it's the same with, with investors. If you have 400 investors investing, let's say $75,000 a year, you can accomplish some incredible things in the real estate space and put yourself in a very good position. So then it, the question is, uh, how can you identify and work with those right 400 people? Um, and so that's really the goal of the business, uh, identifying those 10 sponsors and those 400 or, or 600 investors that are going to help build and grow something together. And so I, I, I'm going to transition a little bit, staying in the same space here. You, you talked about investing in, you know, you're in California, you're investing in Florida, you're investing in North Carolina. I, I know people that are scared to invest 10 minutes from where they live. How, how are you able to conduct a proficient commercial due diligence on real estate that's thousands of miles away from you? Yeah. So first of all, I'd say that I really invest to make money in the sense that it really doesn't, like, this is not a, a game. I'm not trying to invest in nice properties. I don't want to drive by them and say, wow, this is so incredible. Aren't you impressed? The goal is to make capital, protect capital and protect and grow investor capital. So in California, it's very challenging to achieve cash flow that is predictable and is able to achieve that. So immediately you need to look somewhere else. If you have the investment criteria that I do, once you're, three hour drive or so away from your home, you might as well be anywhere in the United States, in my opinion. Okay. There's this whole thing with connecting flights, which actually present a unique opportunity. There's, there's a saying in the, particularly in the self storage business where if the property is not right next to a, a airport that allows you to fly directly, the there's a $3 million discount because private equity groups that have to allocate a hundred million dollars, they're simply not going to fly to those markets. So, awesome. um, yeah. 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 So I would say that conducting diligence when you're relying on a sponsor, that's the vast majority of your due diligence. And so we have systems in place to really read between the lines, but the entire system that we go through with due diligence is really focused on the sponsor. Are they making comments that are going to put themselves in a position to deliver on their promises? Are they overestimating their ability to succeed? Are they able to comp out do the third parties that they work with verify the claims that they're making? And is this the type of person that I want to be working with the next 10 years at a minimum? Because we invest in illiquid real estate syndications. You cannot trade these shares in the open market. So the question really becomes, do I want to enter a business agreement with this person for 10 years? And again, I say person because that's what really matters. You know, when we go through our due diligence checklist, the last thing that we focus on is the legal documents. Why? Because if you're investing twenty-five or fifty or even a hundred thousand dollars, and something goes wrong, let's say the manager explicitly violates the contract and commits fraud, a hundred thousand dollars is a reasonable amount of money to spend on legal fees trying to recover your investment. 
in that sense. So you have to be focused on the person as a whole and where you think their personality will go if things start to go sideways. I love that. And that's an important point is that you can't just look at the deal. You have to look at the sponsor because the deal, even if it's a good deal, can sometimes only be as most a lot of times, almost all the time, only be as good as the sponsor. So that's an absolutely great spot. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just to add to that, to give people kind of an understanding of if you're looking at passive investments, if you want to think about putting together a due diligence checklist and putting together a diligence process. I think it's really important to systematize that so that you're not doing things haphazardly. I think that some people get in the caught, they read the executive summary and a couple things jump out to them, but they never circle back on the things that they should be circling back every time. And if you're interested in increasing the level of sophistication you have as a passive investor, I would suggest kind of looking at things in this order. And this is my opinion in terms of the importance. So I would start with the sponsor thinking about, what position they're in, thinking about questions you can ask about that. The on-site manager, one thing with the on-site manager is looking at the reporting they're going to provide to the sponsor. How sophisticated is that reporting? How transparent is that reporting? What type of software are they using? How knowledgeable about are they and what is their background? Um, and then I want to look at the loan. So about 99% of all the challenges that are in real estate or commercial real estate, any of the horror stories, almost all of them are explicitly about the loan and something you don't hear people talk a lot about. So when I'm looking at the loan, there's a couple of metrics that I want to focus on. Loan to value is important. Loan to cost is important. Like you're all in plus any value add capital expenditure. It gives you a good idea of including that capital expenditure. The interest only portion is really critical. So when, when you invest in commercial real estate, sometimes there will be a portion at the beginning of the loan where there will only be interest payments paid. Now, this can supercharge your returns, but you're not paying down the mortgage, so you're not protecting your equity. If you're not paying attention to this interest-only period and you're comparing two deals which have similar risk profiles otherwise, the deal with a significant interest-only period is going to look much more advantageous. But there's a risk that goes along with that. Obviously, you want to look at the debt service coverage ratio, etc., but my point is you're kind of twisting and pulling knobs and you want to look at the entire capital stack to see how risky that loan is. Um, for example, you can actually have an extended interest only period if you have a very low loan to value. And I think that that's one of the mistakes I made early in my career is thinking that, oh, you're doing five years interest only. That's very aggressive. Well, it's a 50% loan to value. They're actually trying to be conservative on the debt service coverage ratio. Um, you definitely want to look at the pro forma and the property projections as well. One thing that I think, you know, from a big picture, and we're obviously running through, you know, months and months of work, yeah. but one of the things that I would look at is looking at the trailing three month and trailing 12 month financials and then comparing those to the first year or projections. You want to see what difference are they assuming is going to take place from the last 12 months to the next 12 months and thereafter and ask questions about those differences and see if those the answers you get from the sponsor make sense in the sense that well, yeah we're expecting a significant decrease in expenses well here's why this up you know we've got comps that show from businesses that are companies that we own that this should not be at that level um, and then you want to talk about the market so for us we want to look in markets that have half a million people or more, I think is a really good starting point in the major metropolitan area. We're fine going 45 minutes outside that, but just know that the economy will be there. This will usually provide diversification, uh, particularly in terms of employment. So you want to see a good combination of you know, medical, of tech, uh, you know, sometimes military. Hospitality is one that you can have some exposure to that. It's highly cyclical in the sense that we all saw what happened to Vegas when the economy turns south, uh, I can put some, some jamises on that. Um, then I want to look at the property specific due diligence. And these are things like the actual physical structure. You know, what is the roof like? What is the electrical like? How many parking spaces does the subject property have compared to the competitive set? That's these are all things. Parking spaces right there. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. And it's something that can make a big difference, right? Think of especially in multifamily where you have every unit has two parking spaces as opposed to one that has only street parking and that's not being accounted for in the comps. That's a huge, huge value add. And then, like I said, the last one is the legal documents. Again, it's, it's critical, but it's the least important out of all of them. Really what I'm looking for there 
is making sure that my understanding of the investment lines up with the actual documentation, that the executive summary, which is a marketing document, lines up with the provisions in there. And guess what? No one likes to read PPMs, 150, 200 page documents. You have to do it in order to understand. You have to, if you read 20 of them, you'll get a good sense of how the sponsor is balancing the investor's rights with the sponsor's rights. What's actually required of the sponsor? At what time can they require you to put more deep money in the deal? Is it possible to require? We don't invest in any deals that have a mandatory capital expenditure, uh, additional capital call. So right there, just thinking about those seven topics, I think you're going to be a really good position and you're definitely be doing things that most investors out there are not doing. That was invaluable. So everybody listening, I would go back and write down those steps right there. So there, there was a ton of information in those, in those steps there, but that is the process. If you want to be proficient at this, have a career in this, make this your business, whether it be active or passive, you need to do those steps. And especially on, on the, the syndicator side, remember you are taking in other people's money. So you want to be as diligent in these processes as possible and look at the things that are outside the box, like, like the parking, like the access to the property, like the MSA, like the job diversity, like the, the job sectors that are available because they all make a difference. You know, you don't want to be in the steel town. <laughs> so just for, for that point of going around, you don't want to be where it's heavily military related, where things are out of your control. And uh, mm -hmm. that was incredible. Thank you for that. No, so, I appreciate it. Thanks again. With, all of this that you're doing, what is, what is your big why for doing all this? Yeah, right. And that's, that's something that I think that I've done a lot of thinking on this process. And I think that if most people really get down to it, where they act like a kid and they go, why, 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 why? I, I would be surprised if it didn't end up being just one person, right? And, and that's really, you know, what I've come to find, you know, I think it's great. I like helping investors. But at the end of the day, you know, my girlfriend is a really motivating figure in my life. Uh, she is also an entrepreneur. She has a, a corporate event company for tech, uh, tech startups. Awesome. And I, I really want to put us in a position to be able to live the lifestyle that we can live. And I think that, you know, resolving that financial matter is like a major factor. You know, it can cause problems in relationship, but you can definitely remove that from the equation. Um, and really, you know, to do the thing with kids as well. Um, but at the same time, I really do love what I do. Um, because I really like helping people take money out of the stock market. You know, getting that, I remember the first time I helped my mom invest in a deal, it was $400 a month in cash flow, it was debt as well. And that $400 a month wasn't even subject to expenses, right? Because it was debt. So, you know, like nine months in, she received nine payments of $400 a month. And she called me, she's like, is this like what it's like? I'm like, I, I guess, like it's just <laughs> happening. And it's pretty, I mean, I think that's incredible. So, you know, I love, I love what I do and, and that's my why. Those are the great feelings right there. So I, I, I absolutely enjoy that story. That's great. When your mom's calling you up and saying, is this how it is? I mean, that, that's a lot of fun. That's awesome. And we talked a little bit about, about your end game, finding, finding 10 sponsors that you can work with actively. Is, is, is that the full realm there? Is there, there a point in your career where, where this is where you want to ultimately get to with your real estate business? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I ran some numbers. I think if you have 600 investors investing $75,000 a year, which I think is achievable in terms of, you know, dealing only with accredited investors, I think that's actually somewhat conservative. That's $45 million a year of equity, right? And so you're usually using leverage. So you're talking about maybe $150 million a year of commercial real estate. Uh, that would be remarkable. Um, not only remarkable in terms of the financial implications of that, but in terms of the scope of influence, you know, I like making a positive impact on people's lives, not only in terms of their ability to invest, but you know, I, I really want to be an influential figure when it comes to that. And so that amount of capital, that amount of, of capacity to uh, turn around neighborhoods, right? That, that amount of philanthropic ability that that would provide is um, remarkable, but also just being someone that, you know, someone says, you know, I saw the action that you were taking. I saw the focus and that inspired me to do this. The simplest things in the world can result in incredible movement forward. If people just are willing to go take that step, focus on one thing a day that will be able to actually scale your business, you're going to have so much success comparatively. So those are the types of things I love to talk about. And obviously we talked a lot about real estate. To me, real estate is the vehicle. It is the mechanism by which this is 
most cl clearly achievable. It's just the straightest line to that um, that goal. So you know, we could talk about entrepreneurship as a whole, but I mean, it's not that I just like investing in mobile home parks. I, there's nothing about that is important to me. It's really the vehicle in which that that is most achievable. Wow, I love that, and that that's an incredible couple minutes there. And it it is. It's just it's a lot of fun, but again, it's just the vehicle to get you where you want to go. So. Thank you for that. If there is a new investor listening to the podcast right now who wants to jump into the real estate space, whether it's commercial real estate or just actively get involved to reach their financial goals or their, their ultimate goals, what, what is an actual step they can take today to start that journey? So, so two things I'd say, and I'll start with this. Action, number one, constantly and obsessively with a ton of focus. However, I want to put a caveat in there, which is really important, which is that if you're just getting started, the action you need to be taking is obsessively learning. There are so many uh, resources out there that are available now that were not available 10 years ago or so when I was starting that are, that are truly available. You can get you know, conversations with CPAs, conversations with attorneys, conversations with some of the most sophisticated and influential investors in the world in your ear. Um, that would be the action that I would take. What I would not do is listen to people that are eager to get you invested in a deal that you don't fully understand. Like I mentioned, these are seven to 10 year time horizons. They should not, if they have any level of expertise whatsoever, they should not be hustling you into a deal. The, that is the last thing you want to do. This isn't, uh, I don't want to name any specific industries, but it's not a transactional business in the sense that we are stuck together. So due diligence is important, not only in terms of the investor, but also from the sponsor to the investor, because this is all something we're going to have to deal with each other for the next decade. So that would be my suggestion to that. Um, you know, I actually do have a book. I said recently that a lot of people have read 10 X by Grant Cardone. I think that's a good starting point. Just, it makes you realize if you just go as hard as you can. You're probably going to get something remarkable done. I really like that done in conjunction with Miracle Mornings for Entrepreneurs uh, by Hal Elrod and Cameron Harold. Um, Hal Elrod focuses on the morning routine stuff. Cameron Harold focuses on the operational side of things. And Cameron Harold and Grant Cardone have very different perspectives on work-life balance. And it's really good to get those two perspectives. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I would suggest. Go read those two books, maybe read Deep Work as well, and just go as fast as you can, as hard as you can. That's awesome. And do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? Yeah. So I never used to be a morning person at all. I used to love the fact that I could wake up at 830 and get into work at nine and be fine. And since I read Miracle Mornings for Entrepreneurs, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, including vacations, I have done a morning routine that usually takes about 45 minutes. So I will wake up, I wake up about 6.30, and I know that's not super early, but for me, that, that was a big change. I'm waking up at 6.30, take a shower, I then do 10 minutes of closed eyes meditation. I use uh, Headspace, again, something I never, ever did. Um, I then journal, I use an app called the 5-Minute Journal, which really clearly allows you to structure it correctly. I do things like affirmations, which again, I was never doing that three years ago. It's been incredibly beneficial to visualize the things that you're trying to accomplish and manifest them into reality. You know, and I'll just, you know, be open. The listeners have given me all this time. So I'll, I'll you know, let you know what, what I say every morning, which is that I'm a real estate expert who is knowledgeable and a pleasure to work with by 2018 or in 2018, I will in, invest an additional $14 million of equity and add 150 investors to my business. Wow. We're about halfway through there about 8 million has been invested and about 88 investors have been added. So when I originally wrote this down at the beginning of the year, this was something that I thought would be a kind of like a stretch thing where if I did like half of it, I'd be pretty happy with it. So, but the key there is the last part, which is, and this money will be invested in opportunities, which I believe in. Right. And so that's the moral thing that you have to be, your core values have to line up with your goals or you're not going to be motivated to execute day in and day out. So then I do abs, then I have a protein shake, and then I'm ready to rock. And by the way, this is really critical as well. I don't answer email until 10 a.m. usually. So I'm usually working from 7.30 in the morning to 10 without doing emails. And 
Hal Elrod has this whole thing about this, but my, my thing is that emails almost never going to help you scale and they're almost never going to help you acquire new leads. And that's really the, the thing that keeps a business alive is growing. So if you can find one thing that will actually monumentally shift your business and focus on that one thing for at least an hour and a half, maybe two and a half hours every day, literally in a quarter, you're going to be shocked at what you can accomplish in that short amount of time. I absolutely love that because we were just having this conversation about, you know, we, we got what Blackberries, iPhones they're you know, they're 15, 12 years, you know, and before that you didn't have email accessibility at, you know, 2 AM, you know, 6 AM. And now you get up, you're awake for five minutes, you're checking email and you got, you're getting hit with all kinds of things sideways and your whole day goes awry. So not have, basically putting it back in its place and setting your mind right to be able to focus on those big rocks. And it just can show, I mean, you're, you're halfway through your year and having your mind right with those affirmations using headspace, which I love an awesome app and just getting your mind clear for the day. It allows you to really focus on what's going to be important drivers for your future so well done that's awesome yeah no i appreciate it. and then also appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about that just to just to clarify you know the reason that i'm excited about doing this is i want people to do it at home i am certainly don't consider myself a person that has put himself in a position to talk about what you should do and all that stuff that's not at all the goal the goal is i want to share the things that have worked for me and so that we can achieve this together. I want to be in a society where everyone is maximizing their productivity so they're all accomplishing their goals. I'll tell you why. Because I like to buy cool stuff. And if you guys are out there not executing on that high level, there's cool things that I could be doing with my time or products that I could buy that I'm not buying right now. That's what I want. Great. I love it. That's great. So taking this the next step here, what are, what are some words you live by? And I think you have some of that in your affirmations, but I don't know if there's one big thing that's maybe up in your mantle or just in your mind constantly. Totally. So I would say that really building lifelong relationships is the key to the business. If you can set up your incentive structure to incentivize that, that is, is really what it really all comes down to. And that's why this is so much fun. That's why real estate is so much fun. We left corporate America, all of us, because we didn't want to deal with that structure. We wanted to be able to choose our own destiny. We wanted the individual freedom. And to me, it really comes down to uh, relationships. And so if you're, you're in a position where you are able to achieve and create a lot of wealth, what that really results in is relationships and memories. And so you know, that's really what it comes down to. I love it. Well, Hunter, this has been an incredible podcast, a ton of value, a ton of information. Thank you so much for covering on topics that we haven't focused on a ton because we just got a ton out of this. I and mean, just the due diligence aspect alone is invaluable. So if you haven't, check out his podcast, Cashflow Connections. If uh, people would like to connect a little bit more with you or find out more about you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah. So you can shoot me an email at Hunter Thompson at cashflowconnections.com. If you're interested, I have an ebook on the topic of self-storage. I'll shoot you that. I also created a, a mentorship program recently, which we talk extensively about due diligence. You can find that at the CFC mentorship program.com. Awesome. Well, Hunter, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thank you for everyone out there who's listening. If you like what you hear today, please go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and review. Uh, you, of course, can find us on YouTube as well at the REI Foundation. Again, Hunter, thank you so much to all the listeners out there. Thank you for checking in with us. Again, this is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Thank you again. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.